This morning, our sermon text is just a couple of verses from Colossians 3, verses 8 and 9, but I wanted to read uh, verses 1 through 10 so you get a sense of the context of what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 3. So listen to God's word as I read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Kids, you can find this on page 984 of the Bibles that you've got. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is God's word. This morning we're beginning a, a short series on the topic of speech. We don't usually do topical series, but every now and then it seems appropriate. And this series seemed appropriate in light of our study on the book of James. If you recall, in James chapter 3, he warned us about the dangers of our tongues, of the words that we say. And he did so with some of the most extreme language that you'll read in the New Testament. He said that our tongues were a world of unrighteousness, an untamable evil, that with our tongues we set on fire the entire course of life. On the one hand, James taught us that we have the capacity to do tremendous harm with the words that we speak. But if you recall, he also said that if a person could control their tongue, they would be a righteous person. So James shows us that the way we speak is very important to our following of Christ. And so we thought it would be worth giving some extra time to consider how we speak. So this morning's message and the next two sermons will be looking at some of God's teaching about how we should speak. Today we're going to look at the kind of speech that God tells us to put away. So this is going to be somewhat of a negative sermon, looking at those kinds of speech we're supposed to put away. This put away or put off idea occurs all throughout the New Testament. And we see it just even the short passage I read a couple of different times about how we put off what is earthly, put to death what is earthly, and put away certain kinds of behavior and speech. So let me just read again Colossians 3, 8 and 9, and you can hear this put away language. But now... You must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So we're going to key in on those three kinds of talking that Paul mentions here, slander, obscene talk, and lying. 
And then, and we're going to talk why, why it is that God calls us to put these things away and how we do it. But before that, we're going to look at why speech is so important, just to remind ourselves of why to spend time on this. So here's how we'll organize our time this morning. First, we'll look at two reasons why speech is important for Christians. And then we'll look at speech to put away, those three things, slander, obscene talk, and lying. And then finally, we'll consider the Christian response to sinful speech. So why speech is important, speech to put away, and then the Christian response to sinful speech. Well, Jesus shows us that our speech is important because our words reveal our hearts. You can find this uh, statements like this several places in the gospel. So we read one in, in uh, Matthew 15 in the New Testament reading that it's what comes out of us that defiles us. If you were paying attention, you would have seen that Jesus uses the word slander as one of those things that comes out of our hearts that defiles us. We find a similar passage in Matthew chapter 12. Now, let me read that for you. Chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our speech is really important. It reveals who we truly are. Jesus is saying here, on the day of judgment, we're going to face Christ in his glory. And we'll be judged for the words that have come out of our mouths. We'll give an account for every word. We see in the Colossians passage, Paul kind of building on this image of Jesus, the image of a, of a good tree producing good fruit and an evil tree producing evil fruit. Paul doesn't use exactly those tree fruit analogies, but he does say that when we were slaves to sin, we had a certain way of speaking. There were practices that we, we lived with. We, we, we did these practices because we lived in them. We were kind of completely immersed and enslaved to a certain way of being, and our, our behavior and our speech revealed who we were. And so we slandered, we talked in obscene ways, we lied. But Paul says, if we're Christians, we've been crucified with Christ and we've been raised with Christ, so our lives are now hidden with Christ and our lives should now reveal who we are as these new creatures in Christ. Our theological theme this morning is the God who's made all things new. We've been made new, so now our practices and our speech is supposed to be consistent with who we are. And so we're supposed to put off the old ways of speaking and put on Christ. We're to put to death what is earthly in us. These old earthly ways are completely out of step with the new creatures that we are. And so we're supposed to speak in a way that matches who we are. If we were to kind of mash up Jesus and Paul, we might say something like, we used to be poisoned trees producing rotten fruit, but now... By faith in Christ, we've been given a root transplant. We're now new trees. And our fruit, which includes our words, should match who we are. So that's one reason why our speech is so important. It reveals who we are. So at the outset of this series of sermons on speech, we need to 
continuously keep in mind something very important. Talking about speech goes beyond just our words, the words that come out of our mouths. Because our words reveal our hearts, a Christian approach to speech has to start with the heart. So considering our words requires us to consider, what am I loving? What am I trusting in? What am I serving? We're called not only to consider what we say to others, but our attitudes towards others. So again, the, the, the confession of faith we did talked not just about uh, our actions, but our words and our thoughts towards people. We might say it this way, our internal monologue is important when it comes to speech. The thoughts that just exist in your head, even if they never come out of your mouth, they're relevant to what God's word has to say about our speech. So we're not talking about any sort of mere outward conformity here. It should be a, a conformity that comes from the heart. Christian speech includes being careful with the actual things we say and much more. So our, our speech is important because it's a matter of the heart. There's a second reason why speech is so important, and that is because the gospel is news to be spoken. The gospel is speech. It's the word that we speak to the world and to each other as Christians that is our life-giving news. Now, it would be wrong to say that Christian love is only about talk. But it's also wrong to say that we can live the Christian life without Christian speaking. Our Christian fellowship is built on using our words to profess the faith, to preach the gospel, to encourage each other, and to warn each other when we drift into sin. All of these things require words. So the church is a fellowship of people who are in a, a covenantal relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ and with each other. And you can't have a relationship without speaking. Our relationship with God involves speaking. He speaks to us and we worship him with our words. Our relationships with each other require speaking the good news of the gospel. So if we want to be the church, Christ our Savior Baptist Church, that God intends us to be, we must take care to use our speech for the sake of Christ. Christians will understand that our speech is a stewardship God entrusts to us. God has given us the ability to talk and to hear and comprehend. And so the question is, will we use our speech, our words, to serve God or ourselves? Do you see why our speech is so important? As James reminds us, untamed tongues cause a world of trouble. And if we would be righteous, we will work to use our speech in the service of God. So may God produce a righteousness in us that is from the heart and bears fruit in speech that builds up our church and proclaims the gospel. That's my prayer as we begin this series on speech. With that background in mind, let's look again at the specific kinds of speech Paul calls us to avoid here in Colossians 3, 8, and 9. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. 
So slander, obscene talk, and lying are the explicit forms of speech. It may be that anger, wrath, and malice kind of feed in to slander, but we'll just focus on slander, obscene talk, and lying today. But there's one more point we need to address before we get there, and that's the strange way Paul has us speaking of telling us to put things away at the beginning of verse 8, while saying at the end of verse 9 that you have put off the old self with its practices. It almost sounds as if Paul has saying we've already done this, and so why is he telling us to do it? Well, that, I think this helps us uh, see something important about the way Paul reasons about the Christian life. And I hope this will help us all as we try to live the Christian life. Paul's theology of the Christian life is that transformation of the gospel gives us the power to obey Christ. We are new creatures in Christ, and so we should live like it. Some theologians have described this reasoning as reasoning from the indicative of the gospel to the imperative of the gospel. So you need to put on your elementary grammar hat for a second and think with me. Indicative sentences make statements, right? Imperative sentences make commands. So you can see one of the indicatives of the gospel in verse 3 of Colossians. Paul makes a statement. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's just a simple declaration, a a glorious one, but it's a declaration of something that is true. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The imperative of the gospel makes command, which builds on that indicative. So look at verse 5. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then Paul goes on to enlist all these earthly things. Because you are alive, because of the indicative, the imperative is put to death. So according to the theology of Paul, when a person comes to faith in Christ, a transformation takes place. Through faith in Christ, the old man dies with Christ, and the new man is alive with Christ. Death and resurrection happens in our souls. And this transformation means now that as as new creatures in Christ, we must, imperative, fight sin. We are encouraged in this fight, because we know this transformation has happened. So Paul is writing encouraging words and commanding words. Look at who you are and live like it. But because the old man has died doesn't mean we don't have to try. It's an encouragement to fight. We're reminded again and again in Paul that sin is a, a power that still remains active. None of us are free completely from it. So we are dead to sin, therefore die. Put away what is earthly. We're alive to Christ, so put on Christ. Set your mind on things above. So as we look at slander, obscene talk, and lying, we're to understand we have died to those things. We should have nothing to do with them. And yet realize there are ongoing temptations that we face. And so we must put them off. So let's look at this first kind of speech, slander. We're to put away slander. Now, if you had a Greek copy of the Bible, even if you couldn't read Greek, you can see that the word that's translated slander looks like a familiar word. It's the word that looks like blasphemy. It's a very common word in the Bible. You'll find it all over the New Testament. But we usually think of blasphemy as directed uh, towards God. It's a reverent speech about God. But when it's directed toward another person, it's often translated slander, both inside the New Testament and outside. So this slander word is a word that's part of this larger group of of sinful speech. But I think that translation, slander, 
may bring up the wrong idea in our minds, right? If, if someone accuses you of slander, you, you're, you feel like you're being accused of kind of a, a high-handed, intentional, uh, malicious kind of lie meant to damage another person. So we think of slander the way we think of first-degree murder, right? It's, it's, it's premeditated. It's very intentional. If you deliberately go around your office spreading a rumor that a certain coworker is always sleeping on the job, that's slander, right? You're very intentionally doing something to try to tear down this person, maybe get them fired or passed over or whatever. We think of that as slander, and Paul would certainly be forbidding slander of that kind here, but slander includes more than that. I want to show, give you a couple of examples from the New Testament where we see slander used towards a person that, that I think would kind of expand our definition. So one is a place where the Lord is slandered on the cross. In Luke 20, 23, 39, we read that one of the thieves on the cross railed against Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. So that word railed, railed against, is the same word that's translated slander in Colossians 3, 8. Now this thief didn't premeditate this. He didn't wake up that day saying, I'm gonna, I've got a good one for Jesus, right? He was in a desperate situation and he was hurling these desperate insults at Jesus. You might say this is kind of a mocking question of Jesus, right? So that kind of expands our definition of what slander can mean. Another example of slander in the New Testament is Paul talking about how he was slandered in Romans 3, verse 8. He says, why not do evil that, may, that good may come, as some have slanderously charged us with saying? So the slander in that case refers to a, a misrepresentation of what Paul taught. Certainly it was intentional, but again, it kind of broadens out our definition of what slander can be. Another way to get at Paul's meaning of slander is to look at the things Paul contrasts with slander. So in 1 Timothy 3.11, Paul's describing the qualities that should mark either a deacon's wife or possibly female deacons. He said, women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So listen to those three things that a slanderer is the opposite of. A dignified person, a sober-minded person, a faithful person. The opposite of that kind of person is a slanderer. This suggests that slander is a broad category of talking that can be spoken by a careless, unfaithful, undignified person. The reason for going through these verses is just to show you this idea of slander is bigger than just that kind of high-handed, intentional, malicious lie. It includes that, but it also includes what we might think of more passive-aggressive or more, more subtle kinds of malicious words. When Paul calls us to put away slander, then he's calling us to put away any kind of, of takedown that's on purpose, any kind of, of belittling speech or mocking speech that would tear someone else down. I think we could also include sort of non-premeditated kinds of takedowns. So careless sharing of something that should have been kept private or the unthinking mention of a detail that just didn't need to be there. You can see how slander includes the sin of gossip as well. I hope just by going through all these things, you're starting to see how we all can be guilty of slander, right? It doesn't take, again, that high premeditated kind. It can be lots of kinds of our speech that, are, that fall into this category that Paul says is part of the old man. As I said at the outset, if we really want to fight our speech then, we have to ask, why might we be 
motivated or tempted to use words to tear others down. This is going to require some self-knowledge, right? We have to, to pray the psalmist prayer of the, to, to search God's spirit, search our hearts so that we can see if there's any wicked way in us. We need to ask God to show us, where is my, where is my speech falling into this category of slander? So you might ask yourself, what situations or what people bring mocking thoughts into your head? And why is that tempting to you? Or what about misrepresenting others? You know, it might help you to sort of win an argument with your spouse if you take their words and put them in the worst possible light. Is that a temptation for you sometimes? And, and when does careless speech come out? Maybe it comes out for you when you're trying to fit in with a group. Or maybe it's you've got some juicy gossip and you can't help but share it. Or maybe it's when you're stressed careless and, and critical speech comes out towards your kids when there's something going in work that's, that's got you worried. Understanding the occasion for our sin can help us to understand our motives in sinning. So give some thought to why you're tempted to tear others down. If you're thinking about that and having trouble, you might consider this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul gives some possible motivations for slander. He's talking about false teaching, but this applies more broadly. 1 Timothy 6, 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul identifies a lot of different motives here that may lead to slander. So he says pride is a big one, just simple ignorance, greed, a craving for gain, and an unhealthy desire for controversy. Are any of these things present in your heart? Our desire to bring others down is usually connected with our own pride. So how does pride influence the way that you talk? The kind of pride that motivates slander is completely out of step with the humility that re that's required for trusting in Jesus for salvation. If we're humbly trusting in Christ and depending on him for forgiveness and his grace, it becomes much harder to slander others. We must put away slander. The second kind of speech that we have to put away is obscene talk. Now, if you hear that word obscene or obscenity, we usually think of cuss words, right? Perhaps some other kind of explicit language. But obscene, again, is one of these terms that we've narrowed down, but really can be quite broad. It can be a catch-all term for any kind of speech that is undignified. I think when I hear undignified, I think of the Queen of England, right? If you, you know, the Queen of England has all these customs and things she knows she doesn't do because that's below her. It's undignified. It, it doesn't kind of match up with who a queen is, right? Well, we, we're, we need to realize there are some ways of speaking that are undignified. They don't have anything to do with, with royal customs, but they're undignified for who a Christian is. I want to read another passage for you. It might be helpful to turn there. Ephesians 5, 3, and 4. 
this passage in Ephesians is very similar to what Paul is doing in Colossians. These two books of the Bible are very parallel. And I think Paul kind of expands on what we can see as obscene talk and help us to understand what he's talking about. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, it's on page 978. Paul says, But sexual immorality and all purity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Again, we we might be drawn to the, the sexual immorality and the filthy talk, but notice how broad this is. He includes talk about covetousness and foolish talk. These things are included with these other more traditionally obscene kinds of speaking. I think one way to get at what Paul is saying here is to look at, to ask this question, what is proper for holy people to talk about? Notice that phrase there, proper among saints. There's a certain way of speaking that's proper among saints, and it excludes some things. Now, saints doesn't here refer to uh, dead Christians revered by the Roman Catholic Church. No, the, the name saints is one of Paul's favorite ways of talking about Christians. It just means holy ones. So saints are Christ's holy people. They've been set apart by Jesus's death. They're being sanctified. They're being purified by the blood of Christ. So this obscene talk refers to any talk that's improper or unfitting for one of God's holy people. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians cannot have honest conversations about important matters of sexuality. There are proper, honorable ways of discussing those things. Christ's holy people treat those topics with the dignity that they deserve. Christian speech seeks to say what is fitting, what is appropriate. And so there are fitting and proper ways and proper contexts to talk about important and we might say sensitive things. There's, important, there's a proper way to speak about morality. But we also have to acknowledge there's a lot of foolish talk. A Christian approach to speech is going to seek to grow in discerning what is proper for saints and what is foolish, turning away from what is foolish. But we need to be realistic about the fact that we live in the world, but hopefully not of the world. And because of that, we're going to find ourselves in conversations where there may be a lot of inappropriate or obscene or foolish talking. There's a sense in which we can't escape obscene conversations. You might have an obscene conversation walking to the mailbox, you know, and talking to your neighbor. The question is, what will be your witness to Christ in those moments? Have you thought about that? I think this is one way we can be a resource to each other in the church. Talk to a brother or sister here about how you can best model holy and fitting speech with your unbelieving friends. Think about what your temptations are in those moments where someone else is is saying something obscene or inappropriate or unfitting. What do you respond Maybe your response is dictated by fear of man and you kind of want to join in so you you look normal. Or maybe your response is one of self-righteousness. You want to pounce on them and put them in their place. What is fitting? 
We've all heard the old adage of, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Well, I think we can improve on that by saying, if you don't know whether it is fitting to say something, then silence is your friend. This idea of what is proper for saints, I think is a helpful guide in assessing all of our speech because it gets us below a superficial level of saying, was, that, was what I said technically wrong? Think of that about it this way. What kind of speech is fitting or unfitting for a Christian parent to use when disciplining their child? That's a situation that many of us parents find ourselves in and probably found ourselves in today already. Our emotions run high in those moments. So are your words during discipline improperly harsh or cruel? Are your words fitting for a saint? Are they the kinds of holy words that our Savior would use toward one of his children? So if you're a kid here being raised in a Christian home, you know that that's not true of your parents all the time, right? We have much to confess here. There's much that we say that's improper for saints. We could ask a similar question about what kind of speech is fitting for Christian husbands and wives to use with each other. What kind of speech is fitting for a Christian son or daughter to say to his parents or about their parents? What kind of speech is fitting for a holy one of Christ to use about their employer or coworker or their neighbor? What is fitting for a holy one must necessarily exclude, you know, inappropriate jokes and things, but that's really kind of the surface level, right? What we want to see is speech that fits with the fruit of the Spirit, speech that is patient and loving and kind and joyful speech. Paul commands us to put away any speech that is unfitting for God's holy ones. Is your goal to put away obscene talk. The last kind of speech Paul tells us to put away here is lying to one another. It seems incredible that Paul would really have to say this, right? Don't all Christians know not to lie? I mean, that's kind of like talking 101. And don't we especially know not to lie to each other? Is this really an issue? Well, we can think of one example recorded for us in Scripture, at least one, where there was a lie within the church. So I'm thinking of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And these days, these are the early days of the Jerusalem church, right? It had barely been founded. And we read of this wonderful community that had developed there by the the power of the Spirit. Acts 4.34 says that because of the generosity of the saints, there was not a needy person among them. People were selling what they had and sharing their money with each other. And and this young community of Christians was thriving and there there wasn't any need. I want to read to you beginning at the end of Acts chapter 4, verse 36, and read, read the first five verses of chapter 5. Listen to this. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. I want you to focus in on the nature of Ananias's lie. Notice it was a kind of implied lie. We don't hear of Ananias saying anything. Now, maybe he did, and Luke just doesn't record it, but we're not given any words. There's no outright lie of Ananias. His lie is sort of based on the, what was already going on in the community, right? He saw, we saw Barnabas' action, and maybe Barnabas wasn't the only one, and there was maybe sort of an implied understanding. Anyone who brought money and laid it at the apostles' feet was bringing everything they had gotten from the sale of that property, so it was kind of an implied lie. It was a kind of a way to, to make his action look more sacrificial and more perhaps holy than it, it really was. Peter is very clear to him that he didn't have to present any money at the apostles' feet. Right? He, he could have kept it for himself. He didn't have to sell the property. He didn't have to, to bring the money. But then he, he did this act in a way that was clearly meant to deceive. So Ananias' lie includes a kind of misdirection, right? Look over here at what I'm doing. Don't, don't ask any questions about over here. He, had to, he wanted to obscure part of what he was doing and, and draw attention to this other part of what he was doing. He was trying to misrepresent his righteousness to his brothers and sisters in the church. Now, there's certainly some unique factors in Ananias' lie. I mean, it's the early days of the church. Perhaps there are unique needs facing this church. Perhaps this was a part of worship. It seemed like a very public act that other people knew about. But those factors shouldn't keep us from thinking about how we are presenting ourselves to each other in the church. Is there any of Ananias' misdirection in our own lives? Are we trying to draw attention to something good that we're doing over here so that maybe people won't ask too many questions about what's behind the curtain? What are we attempted to hide or obscure from others? Do we ever exaggerate our own righteousness? What is it that we don't want our brothers and sisters to know about? One of the most sinister kinds of lies we tell in the church is when we avoid talking about our own sin and our need of grace. This is a sinister lie because it undermines the very source of our fellowship. The stated reason we're all here is because we're sinners in need of a Savior. We try to talk about that all the time. We see it each week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But when we avoid opening up our lives and letting the embarrassing details show, we sort of act like we're, we're here on another basis. We're here because we're, we've got it all together. Maybe we can own up to a general sinfulness, but we're afraid of giving specifics. Peter tells Ananias that he's not lied to man, but to God. Again, given the nature of Ananias' sin, and it's, maybe it's public nature that it was involved with worship, there was something perhaps uniquely blasphemous about what he did. But there's a sense in which this is true for all lies. And it's especially true when we denigrate the gospel with our hypocrisy. Listen to how 
the Apostle John talks in his first letter in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. That's God. And his truth is not in us. Do you see here there's, there's a link between the way we talk about our sin among God's people and the way we deal with our sin before God privately. If we truly know God and his forgiveness of our sin, we will not say, I have no sin. But if we deny our sinfulness, it raises something, that something's wrong in our relationship with God. Denying our sinfulness publicly reveals a distrust in God and his gospel. Ananias lied to the church in the way he publicly tried to hide his sin, but really he was lying to God. So Ananias lied to God by publicly trying to hide his sin before his brothers and sisters. Is there any way you're trying to hide your sin? What does that say about your trust in God? Our trust in the gospel comes out in the way we talk about our sin with our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the things that we have on a, a rotating list of things to pray for in our pastoral prayers is this, that we would understand the need to make our relationships at church transparent, to be willing to tell embarrassing things about ourselves and to ask awkward questions when needed. So if you ever feel like your relationships at church are awkward, it may be because the elders are praying for that. For that. We want this, this place to be a place where we can ask uncomfortable questions because they're needed sometimes. We want it to be a place where we can confess the ways we're sinning, not so that we can grovel in misery, but so that we can lay hold of Christ. So we can put to death what is earthly and put on Christ. In Ephesians, Paul offers this reason for putting away lying. He says, therefore we have put away falsehood. Therefore, having putting away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. We are members of one another. Brothers and sisters, what opportunities are we missing for magnifying the gospel because we are hiding our sin? We're members of one another. We're members of the body of Christ. I wonder if one reason we're not more transparent is because in some way we're, we're worried that people will use what we say to slander us. But the gospel is kind of a slander-proof vest. Jesus already knows all of your sin, and he paid its price. What can man say about you? Even so, do you really think that your brothers and sisters here have any desire to tear you down? Just put yourself in, in their shoes. If, if someone came to you and confessed a, a sin that they were struggling with, you wouldn't use it to tear them down, right? You'd pray for them. You'd encourage them. Our membership in Christ is a membership of sinful people who've been forgiven by a merciful Savior. It's a membership that's devoted to encouraging each other in the gospel. When we hide our sin, we deprive ourselves of prayer. 
We deprive ourselves of help from each other and encouragement that others can give to us. I'm sure you found this. In your relationships, transparency breeds transparency and hypocrisy breeds hypocrisy. When we refuse to be honest about our sin, we put up barriers that keep others from confiding in us. And so we miss out on opportunities to encourage others. Paul calls us, put away lying. Because we belong to the one who is called the truth, we put on truth. Our church's fellowship and its vitality depends on us telling the truth to each other. To the extent that we don't tell the truth, our ministry is hindered and the gospel is obscured. Our words are so important. Our words can tear apart our fellowship if we use them sinfully. Or our words can display the gospel. Our unrighteousness and our righteousness is revealed in our words. So what do your words reveal? What's coming out of your heart? Is there any slander? Any obscene talk? Any dishonesty? Beginning in verse 12 of Colossians chapter 3, so just a few verses down from where we've read, Paul calls us to put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness. Do your words sound like that? Any honest assessment of our words is going to reveal failures. Right? You just look at the last 12 hours of your life, right? So going back to you know, 10 o'clock last night, you can probably pinpoint some sinful words that you spoke or sinful thoughts that you had. Some of us here struggle to think the best of people. Some of us have trouble controlling our mouths and those sinful thoughts become sinful words. Some of us are tempted to give ourselves over to obscene talk, to, to improper, unfitting talk. There are certain people that we have a really hard time being humbly honest with. How are you struggling with your words? When we come to see our sin, we need to begin by confessing it to the Lord. A good thing to pray for each other as you're praying through the membership directory is pray that your brothers and sisters will have tender consciences about our speech, that we will run to Christ to seek forgiveness when we discover our sin. I don't know about you, but I find, it, I find it easy to sort of think, well, sins of, the, sins of speech are sort of small sins, and there are so many of them. How could I possibly confess them all? But no, we should have tender consciences that we don't want to live with, with sinful words spoken for too long before we address it with God. Depending on the nature of those sinful words, they probably need to be addressed with the person we've sinned against. So who, who heard the coarse joke? Who did you yell at? Who did you lie to? In Colossians, Paul addresses the need to forgive each other in the church. Just a few verses after, he talks about sins of speech. In his letters, he assumes that the church members he's writing to were close enough to each other to sin against each other and to forgive each other. Are we that close? Are your relationships marked by that kind of seeking and giving forgiveness? Again, is that what your relationship with God is like? 
Is your relationship with God based on frequently going to him and asking for forgiveness and rejoicing in the forgiveness of the gospel? What about your relationships at home? What about your relationships here in the church? If it's been a while since you have had to ask for forgiveness or you've been asked for forgiveness, is that because there's been no sin in your relationships? A lack of conflict may be a sign of righteousness, but maybe not. It can mean we're not really very close with anyone or that we just don't want to talk about the things that trouble our relationships. Churches that are full of meaningful relationships are going to have to deal with sin in those relationships. Pray that we do it righteously. So a Christian approach to sinful speech must mean a Christian response of righteous repentance. The righteous response to our sinful speech is repentance. So this means confessing our sin to God and to each other. It means extending forgiveness when someone sins against us. If repentance and forgiveness aren't a part of our relationships with each other, then there's nothing very Christian about them. Repentance is the right response to sinful speech, and it's more than that. Consider this. Repentance is also a means of pursuing godly speech. Because when we repent, we're humbled. Repentance is a way that God tears down our pride. And pride, as we've already said, is one of the root motivations of our sinful speech. If you pursue humility and repentance, you're fighting against sinful speech. Repenting takes away some of the kindling that our tongues need to start a destructive blaze. And when we repent and experience the kindness of God in forgiving our sin, we're empowered and inspired to imitate his love. So repentance and faith in the gospel are God's means of taming our tongues. If we would put away sinful speech and put on what is fitting, we have to fix our eyes on things above, where Christ is. Put on what is fitting by looking at your holy Savior. He was crucified for you. He was raised from the dead. Now he has been exalted to God's right hand. And you know what Jesus is doing up there? He's speaking. Jesus is using his words to intercede for you. You are one of God's holy ones. So put away any speech that's improper to his saints. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for this vision of Christ. Help us to set our eyes on things above where Christ is. We thank you that he does live to intercede for us, that when we sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. We pray that our eyes will be filled, filled with Christ so that we will put on Christ Help us to rejoice in the forgiveness that Christ has purchased. I pray you'll help us to keep a short record of wrongs. That we won't let hours and days go by before we confess our sin to you. Before we confess our sin to those we've sinned against. We pray, Father, that you will humble us.
that we will see the joy of living in humility. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.